0: Maybe the first three days of school felt like that. Maybe not. Hopefully, they, uh, if if they did feel like that, they'll be getting better. So our our back to school sermon series is based on characters from the book of Judges, uh, which is one of the twelve so-called historical books in the Hebrew Scriptures. And they're called um, the historical books because you know, in addition to the obvious matters of theology, they're focused on telling some, actually many of the details of the history of Israel uh, specifically from the time of the entrance into the promised land uh, through the return from the exile. And that actually raises some important questions. Uh, why study historical figures? Why does history matter? What, uh, what can the details of history teach us? Now, fair questions all, I think. Now, I've personally always been captivated by history, which I suppose is not all that surprising for the son of a history teacher. Um, and of all the eras of history, it's the the American Civil War has captivated me the most. It's the the historical subject other than biblical history that I've studied the most. Um, and that's because I grew up in Northwest Maryland, just over the mountain from the battlefield at Antietam, and not all that far from the battlefield at Gettysburg. We were we were surrounded by Civil War history in a part of the country that had been deeply affected by it. And we visited uh, Civil War battlefields multiple times over the years. The subject of the Civil War and especially uh, its major characters has remained a lifelong interest of mine. And so it's not uh, surprising that uh, in the midst of a sermon series called The Struggle Bus about a nation going through one of its most difficult periods, the Civil War era is on my mind. One summer, many years ago, before Whitney and I had kids, uh, we were driving back from a vacation in Georgia, which meant that we drove right through Vicksburg, Mississippi. So of course, I wanted to stop and see the Vicksburg National Military Park. I mean, um, if you're a Civil War buff at all, you know that the, the Union victory at Vicksburg led by General Ulysses S. Grant was arguably the most important turning point of the war, not least because it got Grant promoted to commanding general by Lincoln, which was arguably Lincoln's most important military decision of the war. Listen, I had read about this my whole life. We, we had to stop and, and see this park. Now, Whitney, on the other hand, um, well, she's an industrial engineer by training and by temperament, and she was she's not a Civil War enthusiast. She was reluctant to make a stop on the way back from vacation at Vicksburg, but she loves me, so she humored me. At the visitor center, we discovered that they had two options for self-guided audio driving tours. One was two hours long, the other was four hours long, and I obviously wanted the four-hour tour, right? Whitney insisted that the two-hour tour would be plenty, and so that's what we chose. So we got in the car, and we, we drove a little ways um, to a turn-off with a sign. And I parked, and I turned off the audio, and I got out of the car, and she looked at me and said, What are you doing? <laughs> I said, Well, this is what you do at battlefields. Like, I, I like to visualize what it must have been like on the field. I like to ponder the, the courage and the sacrifice of those who fought. I actually like to read the signs. Like, if you look at this picture, there's a sign by that cannon right there. I like to read the signs, all the signs I like to read, preferably. And the look on her face told me how she felt about that. <laughs> it was hot, it was muggy, it was. July or August in Mississippi, surely after two hours in the air-conditioned car, we would get the gist, is is the argument she made. Well, long story short, that two-hour driving tour took us a half day to get through, give or take. Uh, She still gives me a hard time about it all these years later, being convinced that had we taken the four-hour tour, we very well may still be on the field at Vicksburg. On the bookshelf in my office, there's a a brilliant 3,000-page, three-volume work called The Civil War, A Narrative. Its author was a Mississippian named Shelby Foote, uh, who became best known for his appearances on uh, Ken Burns' 1990 documentary called The Civil War on PBS. Has anybody here seen that? Okay, yeah. Thank you. So I owned a copy of that documentary, 11 and a half hours. I had him on a. The VHS tapes that they came on was like this this wide. I watched them more than once over the years. If you watched them, you know who Shelby Foote is. In the first volume of his epic three volume narrative of the war, Foote wrote about the man whose wisdom and boldness led to victory an army that had struggled mightily for the first two years of the war. The hero of Vicksburg, Ulysses S. Grant. He writes, Grant was something rare in that or any war. He could learn from experience. I'm gonna come back to Grant later, but this idea of of learning from experience is a, a vital life skill for every human being, but particularly for leaders. And as we'll discover in this series on judges, failing to learn from experience is a great way to get stuck on the struggle bus. So this is week two of our back to school sermon series about a difficult time in our faith history. Last week, uh, we talked about Joshua, one of the truly great leaders in the history of Israel who had brought God's people to the promised land. They had defeated many of those who were already living there. They had occupied most of the land that God had promised. But the, the 25 year leadership of Joshua had ended in uncertainty, we wrote about this last week. Shortly before his death, he gathered the people to renew their covenant with God, and he challenged them to, to choose God and to turn away from the idols and the false gods of their new neighbors. He promised them that, that uh, if they kept the covenant, things would go well, but that if they did not, things would go poorly. And Joshua and his generation uh, dies And the book of Judges early on, which follows the book of Joshua in the Bible, tells us that another generation grew up after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And at least seven times in the 21 chapters of the book of Judges, over and over again, we're told that the Israelites did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, that's the phrase. The Israelites did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And for two centuries, they stay stuck in this vicious cycle that Joshua had predicted. Uh, they stray from God and then things get bad. And then uh, they cry out to God for help. And then God answers them by raising up a new leader. God's grace comes before the change in behavior. So God doesn't reward good behavior. God, they cry out, God raises up a new leader and things get really good until the people stray again. They most decidedly do not learn from experience. And during this era of uh, the judges, the 12 tribes of of Israel are not united. They're a a loose uh, confederation. They have ongoing power struggles uh, internally. Externally, they endure continuing warfare with the Canaanites who had been uh, in the land when the people arrived as well as numerous foreign tribes, so they're at war with lots of different people. In short, they were beset by challenges during this era, within and without, led by leaders of varying ability. And so what we're gonna read about this week and next is one of the uh, effective leaders of this era. This is Judges chapter four, verses one to 10. And I'm just gonna tell you now, There are so many names in these 10 verses and I worked very hard to write in the margins of my Bible exactly how to pronounce all these names. Um, If I mispronounce any of them, don't correct me, it's fine, you can tell me later. So this is Judges 4, 1 to 10. Listen friends, for the word of God as it is proclaimed by God's servant, the author of Judges. The Israelites did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. So the Lord sold them into the hand of King Jabin of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in that place there. <laughs> it's not important, it's not important. The H town. Then the Israelites cried out to the Lord for help. For he, Jabin, had 900 chariots of iron and had oppressed the Israelites cruelly years at that time Deborah who was a prophetess wife of Lapidoth was judging Israel she used to sit under the palm of Deborah she had the the tree was named after her between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim and the Israelites came up to her for judgment she sent and summoned Barak son of Abinoam from Kedesh in Naphtali see what I'm saying and said to him, the Lord, the God of Israel, commands you, go, take position at Mount Tabor, bringing 10,000 from the tribe of Naphtali and the tribe of Zebulun. I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the the Wadi Kishon, with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. Barak said to her, if you will go with me, I will go, but if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah got up and went with Barak to Kedesh. Barak summoned Zebulun and Naphtali to Kedesh, and 10,000 warriors went up behind him, and Deborah went up with him. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. A couple of years ago, I read Ron Chernow's uh, biography of Ulysses S. Grant, who was a Methodist, by the way. Um, I, I didn't know much about Grant's personal story to that point, like the fact that he was a Methodist, by the way, uh, but this is a fantastic biography. I, I'm going to read it again at some point. If you're interested in the subject at all, I'd highly recommend uh, Chernow in general, but, but certainly this a particular biography. Shelby Foote made the point that, that Grant was that rarest of military leaders, one who, who possessed an ego manageable enough uh, to learn from experience, and especially from his mistakes. And you could argue that's an essential trait for, for any leader. Um, he was not inclined to keep doing the same thing over and over if it wasn't working. And in the course of the whole war, that included learning from the mistakes of the, the leaders he replaced. Taking over from a series of mediocre commanding generals, Grant had to figure out how to defeat one of the greatest military minds in American history, Robert E. Lee. And of course, we all know the story, even if we only know it in broad brushes. Figure it out, he did. And thank God, he did, obviously. His wisdom and boldness helped get this great nation off of the struggle bus that we had been on reflecting later on what he'd learned, uh, Grant said the art of war is simple enough. You you find out where your enemy is, you get at him as soon as you can, you strike him as hard as you can, and you keep moving on. It was a lesson that would that would take him and his army all the way to the Confederate surrender at Appomattox. Now, I'm guessing that Ulysses S Grant did not get his military advice from Deborah. But But the two of them shared the wisdom and boldness that their respective eras required. In this period of Israel's history, uh, judges were not judges in the modern sense, meaning um, those who weigh evidence and issue decisions in civil or criminal trials. Judges in this era uh, were rulers. And in some cases, they were essentially local warlords with the charisma to inspire people to follow them. Like everything else during this era, there were some highlights and there were some disasters. The stories in the book of Judges uh, alternate between good, effective leaders like Deborah and less effective ones like Samson, a name you've probably heard. We're gonna cover him in week four. The reason Deborah is getting two weeks in this sermon series is because she is the only woman in the Old Testament who holds such an important position of leadership and authority. So if, if anyone ever tries to tell you that, that women should not lead people of faith, some people believe that, you can just tell them that God has been calling women to leadership since at least the 12th century BC. Uh, this image is on the Nebraska State Capitol. It's, it's called Deborah judging Israel. So we're told that, that Deborah is a prophetess at a holy site near Bethel in the the north of Canaan. We're told that the people came to her for decisions on important matters. She was known for her wisdom and her boldness. As a trusted leader, Deborah is approached by her fellow Israelites to lead a revolt against King Jabin the the Canaanite. Uh, Those living in the, the northern part of the promised land had been oppressed for 20 years by Jabin, they had been uh, led by ineffective leaders, presumably those without faith, and they had endured this generation-long oppression until they came to the right person. Now, the translation that that we read from here in worship, the New Revised Standard Version, uh, says that Deborah was, quote, the wife of Lapidoth. But uh, but Hebrew is a complicated language, and that that phrase, uh, wife of Lapidoth, is actually a phrase that some scholars believe should be translated differently. I prefer the other translation. The Hebrew there could also mean fiery woman, which is just the type of leader you'd want if you're trying to throw off the reign of a 20-year oppressor. We're told that Jabin's general is a man named Sisera, it's an unusual name. It's not a name from the languages of the people in that era. That means Sisera is probably a mercenary from one of those foreign tribes. So a formidable opponent. And we're told that Jabin had iron chariots, which would have given him a tremendous technological advantage. The the Israelites, the Hebrews, did not master the art of iron working until the time of Saul and David, much much later. So it's like these um, these guys these people on foot are facing 900 tanks. That's the way we can think of it. And the only way that God's people are gonna possibly prevail against such a dominant foe would be through the power of God. And so on behalf of God, Deborah identified a man named Barak to lead the army. And of the 12 tribes of Israel, we're told that two agree to fight. The, The Galilean tribes of Naphtali and Zebulun because remember God's people are not united at this point And so it's only the tribes who are affected in that region in the north of the land who are interested in helping to throw off Jabin's rule. And we we left off the reading with this dramatic scene where 10,000 warriors are assembled on Mount Tabor uh, to meet the army of the king who had oppressed them for a generation. Another leader with wisdom and boldness, Ulysses S. Grant, writing 3,000 years later would say, uh, the distant rear of an army engaged in battle is not the best place from which to judge correctly what is going on in front. It's a maxim that that Deborah must have known (laughs) because she rode with the army that she had ordered into battle, herself facing the chariots of the enemy and the mercenary general commanding them. So, let's see how it turns out. This is chapter 4, verses 11 to 16. I'm going to skip part in the middle. You're welcome to read those verses on your own. I'll come back to the end of the chapter. So, listen again, friends, for God's word. Now, Heber, the Kenite, had separated from the other Kenites, that is, the descendants of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, and had encamped as far away as which is near Kedesh. When Sisera was told that Barak, son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera called out all his chariots, all of them, 900 chariots of iron, and all the troops who were with him from the place they had come from to Wadi Kaishan. And he's imagining, of course, that these Two tribes of Israelites are just gonna run. There's 900 chariots and all these troops. He thinks he's making a scene. But then Deborah Deborah said to Barak, up for this is the day on which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. The Lord is indeed going out before you. So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 warriors following him and the Lord Lord through Sisera and all his chariots and all his army into a panic before Barak. Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot while Barak pursued the chariots and the army back to where they came from. All the army of Sisera fell by the sword. No one was left. So on that day, God subdued King Jabin of Canaan before the Israelites. Then the hand of the Israelites bore harder and harder on King Jabin of Canaan until they destroyed King Jabin of Canaan. The book of Judges is about a difficult time in our faith history. It's a time when God's people uh, struggled. They struggled to remain faithful. They struggled with enemies all around them. They struggled to prosper in the land that God had promised them, and, and just as Joshua had foreseen, and just as Joshua had warned them about, they went through periods of time when they forgot their faith commitments to God and to each other, and worse, they went through times when they intentionally chose idols over God, and for two centuries this went on. During this era, uh, they went through leader after leader, searching for the person who could bring them security and prosperity. The the book of Judges records plenty of failures along the way. There are some grim, grim stories in the book of Judges. But in Deborah, they found a faithful leader. (laughs) And that made all the difference. She's one of the best in this era of struggle. She's one of the most important figures of the Old Testament even though she only gets a couple couple chapters dedicated to her. She's a leader with with wisdom and boldness, but more specifically wisdom and boldness that is, is rooted in her faith in the one God. Now next week, we're gonna read chapter five, which is a poem. It's the poetic version of um, this story of Deborah. And we're gonna read that thanks to Deborah's leadership guided wisely and boldly by God, God's people would be rewarded with four decades of peace. They had endured a generation of oppression. Thanks to Deborah, they'll have two generations of peace. Now, you may be thinking so what, <laughs> why study historical figures? It's an interesting story, I think, but why study it? Why does history matter? What, what can the details of history teach us and what's the connection to Ulysses S. Grant? Those are fair questions all. For me, uh, our biblical history gives us role models to look to. Now, Jesus is a whole separate thing. That's the New Testament. <laughs> This is the history of Israel. We can find in this history role models to look to wise and bold leaders who show us the way, especially in times of great struggle because God knows there's a lot of struggle in the Old Testament. In In the words of that Methodist leader who helped our great nation get off the struggle bus, hold fast to the Bible. To the the influence of this book, we are indebted for all the progress made in true civilization. And to this, we must look as our guide to the future. When, When we're struggling with challenges throughout our lives, when we're confronted with obstacles that seem impossible for us to conquer on our own, when we're not sure what's next and when we're fearful of what the future may bring, we can look to the heroes of our faith history. And when we do that, we see that God's people fare best when God's people have the wisdom and the boldness to put their faith and confidence in God. That's, that's when things go best whatever battle we're facing, the best place to start always is with the God revealed in Jesus Christ. And so we turn to God in prayer, and we turn to God in silence, and we turn to God in faith, trusting that God is with us in the struggle always, and that God will never let us down. Thanks be to God for the example Deborah sets for us all. Amen.